hello and welcome to the first Atlas podcast of the new year. I'm here as always with Martin. Hello. Welcome back, Martin. Hello. Hello, Alex. Welcome back to you too. Um, mm. Back into 2021. Yeah. Let's see what this year brings. More exciting uh, podcasts, no doubt. Oh, well, at least 50 of them, I hope. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, so yeah, this week uh, we've got a couple of things we wanted to look at from last year, sort of some more recent, some for, uh, linking further back. Uh, we're also going to take a look at linking the cloud with machines, which is very much in our wheelhouse. Uh, and then we have a fantastic interview with a chap named Svetan coming up later on. Yeah, which um, I quite like that. We've recorded this, the interviews um, before the podcast, which we don't always do, but it's quite nice to do that because then you kind of can reflect back on it in the main body of the podcast, can't we? But yeah, Svetan was um, always great to talk to anyway. Um, once we got mm. the te technical issues out of the way, um, the interview <laughs> went on, didn't it? So uh, we could have could have kept talking to him for ages, but um, it was good. <laughs> He'll come back, I'm sure. And it'll all come together in the magic of editing. <laughs> no one would know. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you pointed to an article from uh, mid-December, which we'll post in the comments, uh, on the SolarWinds cyber attack in America. Yeah. So um, this is kind of like, you know, in the news, wasn't it? Very, very briefly, because lots of things have happened in the news. Um but this is actually a really big story that kind of went without anybody knowing about it, really, or went past because it was just before Christmas and then everything's happened since. So, um, mm. so yeah, this was probably the biggest cyber attack on um, US uh, uh, since the Cold War. And that's what people yeah. are talking about. So it's a massive cyber attack. Um, and it was basically using uh, a, a loophole in a security system that monitored um, network traffic, really. Mm. Um, and that was the, this company called um, SolarWinds. And they talk about SolarWinds in a way that this is the biggest company you've never heard of type of thing. Because really, a lot of the stuff when we talk about security is clouded a bit in secrecy. Um, because mm. obviously you don't want to necessarily expose how you're doing stuff. Um, well, that's it, a necessity thing, isn't it? You don't want people knowing who has at least some access to all of these various systems. Yeah, and it's very much in the need-to-know type of um, arena. Um, and, you know, some of the customers and work that I've been involved with, you know, you go through the security clearance type of protocols, and you can absolutely see those people involved with that are the ones who basically... Um, don't talk a lot because they don't, you know, they, they, they live by the principle of a need to know and it kind of filters mm. into their everyday life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a bit like this with this, you know, it's a very low key news article, but when you look at the implications of this, they're absolutely huge. Um, so mm. what basically happened with this, uh, with this um, cyber attack was um, SolarWinds, like I said, is a security um, um, application that monitors network traffic um, and looks for anything a bit spurious in that in that traffic. And apparently it's used by many, many, many businesses, including the US government and a lot of the defense agencies around it. So this system is there to make their systems secure or mm -hmm. looking at the network traffic to make sure it's secure. 
Um, but it itself was targeted as a part of the cyber attack. So somehow, um, a uh, basically a worm, uh, this kind of virus worm, um, got implanted into the um, the next update of the SolarWinds application. So somehow, so first of all, you've got to kind of ask yourself, how did that happen? How did an update a piece of software get inserted into the SolarWinds update? Um, and secondly, then once it had been implanted into that software, it was then used to basically it was enabled a few weeks later um, and then was capturing information and then sending it outside of the network. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, from the article, what I read, that's one of the most fascinating things is it it wasn't an active thing initially the whole point was that it gets in there and then doesn't do anything so yeah. that nothing picks it up and then springs into action once it's uh, embedded yes exactly and got the information it requires and all of that type of thing so it's very stealthy um uh, uh, and then you know sprang into life and achieves it achieved i guess its mm. goals and obviously this is a very sophisticated attack because when you start to understand software and how software works, you've got to kind of know a bit about the source code of what you're trying to um, infiltrate with that approach. Maybe, maybe not, don't know. Um, so, you know, there's without being, maybe being sceptical is the right word, we have to go, well, how did that actually happen without, you know, if we're saying it's a foreign actor involved and many people are pointing towards um, Russia with this, with an organization called Cozy Bear or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm sure very it's menacing. not as cozy. Yeah, very menacing. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've you got to ask yourself how this actually got embedded into that source code, how it got a part of the release, um, all of those kind of things, um, you know, and how is that achieved by a state actor who's the other side of the world? Or maybe they're not. You know, mm. one of the things when we're doing the security clearances, the biggest threat is you, the individuals. Um, and therefore, you know, it's back to, okay, cyber attacks and this and the other. But actually, security covers a lot more. And network security covers a lot more than just uh, computer systems. It's about people. It's about access to it. Um, it's about the, you know, the, the clearance that individuals have got. And most... Most of these kind of um, infiltrations are very sophisticated operations and not just your everyday hacker trying to hack into a system. Yeah, it's um, not like a scattergun <laughs> approach. It's uh, it's a few different elements that come together to create something, like you say, very sophisticated like this. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously that's a huge breach of the, uh, of the national security of the US. Um, there could be the fact it was inside the state government you don't know what kind of information was being harvested and was being sent i'm sure we'll never find out what that is um mm. but that's the situation <clears throat> so it's incredible yeah. i think uh, one thing that caught me from the company as well these solar winds they actually started just prior to uh, or in expectation of the y2k panic mm. which obviously turned into a bit of a damp squib, as we know, but then 20 years later, the company's still going and they have something in everywhere. I think they said in the article that there's not a an IT deployment out there that doesn't have something mm. to do with solar winds. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's that biggest company you've never really heard of type of thing. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, the the Y two uh, not to broaden that, but the Y two K okay was a damn squib because lots of people spent money on protecting themselves against it. It's one of those things that everyone goes, oh, it wasn't the disaster it turned out to be. Well, that's because a lot of people spent money making sure it wasn't. You know, uh, so yeah, mm. it's always one of those things, isn't it? If you if you uh, pay the insurance money out and it doesn't happen, or was it really a problem? Well, mm. you know, but anyway. <laughs> um. So slightly um, touching on a different subject, which is going to lead on to a little bit about the uh, more the tech side of things rather than the news article. We're going to reflect back on the um, another a slightly different angle, I guess, on on security, um, and that was the um, Suxnet um, uh, virus, or for want of a better word, worm virus, that was mm. uh, which, which um, was uh, back down. I think it's back there back in two thousand and ten was. Um, basically uh, a, a a system another worm um, virus that was um, blamed for the destruction of the Iranian centrifuge system for the uh, nuclear enrichment mm-hmm. um, and once again this is why I say this is this touches on that whole how do you connect the short floor to the cloud and how do you make it secure so this is a really good use case where we can actually start to do a bit more skeptical deep dive into this so the world of um connecting um shop floor control systems into the cloud if you like um also has to take into account these types of things so cut a long story short on this one and so yeah so the suxnet um worm was um used or was it used? We'll debate that. Um, mm. To basically destroy the uh, uranium um, um, sub, uh, centrifuge. Uh, uh, centrifuge. Yeah, yeah. Centrifuge. It's a, a thousand centrifuges <laughs> and set back Iran's nuclear program program for years. Yeah. Um, so the way that this worked was very much, and this is what how it was assumed to work. So it was assumed that this um, Suxnet virus was put onto a, a USB stick because back then not things were necessarily networked together. Um, mm. That that um, USB stick was put into a computer on an, a, a local area network, um, PC, which registered itself and wasn't picked up by the Windows operating system um, because the, the certification that come with it, the digital certificate, was accepted by the computer. Okay. Mm. How, so it didn't see it as any sort of threat, basically. Yeah, so it didn't see it as any threat. It's a bit like your immune system not really picking up. You've got a, uh, a cancerous cell or something like that. Um, mm. uh, and, and therefore, once it was in the system, it spread and replicated across the whole network. Once it was into the whole network, <clears throat> then the machine that, um, it, or the PC, that, and this was a Windows PC because it's a Windows-type um, virus, um, was then uh, spread across the network and then spread to that PC that was controlling uh, or talking to the um, controller, the PLC controller in this in this world, which is a st- step seven, Siemens step seven PLC controller, um, mm-hmm. uh, found those particular controllers. Um, so it spread itself out, updated the software, and then found those um, controllers that it recognized and then basically set about altering the program so that the uh, information being displayed to the user or the operator looked like everything was okay, 
but the actual control of the centrifuge was sent into oblivion okay mm. and then destroyed itself but the operator looking at it looked like everything was normal um and this is why it's really quite complicated for me to believe this because there's a few things that we need to understand here one is all of that how do you get the virus on the usb stick into the computer well that's going to require some level of infiltration or personal yeah. <laughs> contact with the um, network yeah, inside perhaps or it was placed inside there's a, a sort of getting really james bondy at that point yeah exactly um and then when we come on to the details about how you connect plcs to the shop floor you need to understand intimately the program inside those controllers and um, down mm -hmm. to the level of understanding every single address of every single memory location and what that memory location does within the system not only that the memory location of what's controlling the uh, centrifuge but also the memory location of the information being sent to the SCADA system to rep represent the normality of the system so you really need intimate detail and any even bot today wouldn't be able to work out all of that information because you require a level of intelligence or inside information about that mm. um, if that makes sense so yeah we, it has to be very very sophisticated understanding of what those centrifuges is and the virus itself won't be able to work that out. No, they're very much, uh, they work as rope, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so, and then coming on to the other sceptical point, so we've got a few sceptical points there, is mm -hmm. a lot of these systems also have um, safety systems, and those safety systems can't be overridden. Um, so I don't know if this did have a safety system, but whenever we work on um systems that have got high a level of high uh, power even your robots or something like that there's always a level of safety system those safety systems work outside of the controller so that means that if they did detect a level of um, speed or temperature or something like that the actual hardware safety system would shut itself down it's not like in the movies where you have to have someone stood there and they read a dial and they hit a big red button and it stops. It's something that it happens as it happens, basically. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of things. And they, they, there's companies like Pilts, Pilts Relays that have these kind of, you know, quite sophisticated safety systems around it that are your belt and braces, basically. So, mm. you know, you take all of that into account um, to actually use that kind of approach to destroy something you know, a lot of stuff's got to be going in your favor um, or a lot mm. of inside information. And there's probably other likely um, scenarios that would probably achieve the same goals without that level of sophistication, like a, a rocket or a bomb or um, whatever. Um, so, yeah, so that's why all these security um, issues are always very difficult to uh, get your hand around because of the secrecy that builds around it, really. Yeah, um, I mean, by their very nature, they're not things with a lot of public information about them because that would sort of defeat the the object, I guess. No, and and also the way it's reported in the news and things like that isn't going to necessarily be telling you that kind of uh, detail, or maybe they're telling you the detail that makes enough sense to people that people don't ask too many. Um, questions ultimately so yeah a couple of interesting security cases there um, but what that does do is when we are trying to genuinely connect up factories 
um, <clears throat> and put a level of uh, automation and try and achieve the flexible reconfigurable factories of the future, that means that there's a lot of concern around the security because it is believed that these are the ways that security systems are penetrated. Um, mm. What I'm saying here is they take a lot more than just that. Um, and there's lots of other things that have to go right and wrong. And generally, I would say there's a level of insider knowledge. Um, there's a level of um, <clears throat> understanding about intimately about the control systems around it. So that's going to be really quite complicated. Um, and also then you've got to override all kinds of other systems to make this achieve. So yes, safety and network security is is important, <clears throat> but we also have to understand these grand stories again to the news are probably more um, sophisticated and complex than are on face value, really. Mm. <clears throat> I think that leads uh, nicely into our our topic for this week, our tech topic for the week, which is linking the cloud with machines. So really what we're talking about is here is how to network machines and then necessarily network them up into the cloud to utilize the capability of cloud computing. Um, and we'll do. We've done touched on cloud computing, but we'll we'll probably do some real deep dives into the yes six main benefits of cloud in in subsequent um, uh, podcasts. But really, how do we connect stuff to the cloud, or how do we connect stuff to a network, which then we can connect to the cloud? Um, and there are three ways, really, three main ways of looking at this. Really, is to have inside. Um, equipment that we want to connect to the cloud, um, basically IT-friendly control technologies. Um, sort of technologies that are set up ready for the cloud, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and when you think of the legacy and the history of how um, these uh, systems have developed, they have never been designed to be able to even network, let alone connect to the cloud. Um, and they are very complicated systems. So the main purpose of, uh, of a control system, um, whether that's a PLC or even a PC controller, um, is to control the piece of equipment. Um, and almost secondary to that, or even third to that, I would say, secondary to that is um, uh, share that information with a local HMI or SCADA system. And third is then connecting it into a, a wide area network uh, so we can utilize that information. And mm. the kind of reasons you want to do that for is because it's twofold, really. You, one, you want to send information to that machine, like um, what to make and how to make it. So rather than that information being stored locally, when you introduce new products or update changes to products, so you can distribute that information very quickly to the machine and um, without having to manually program it each time. So this really shortens the um, uh, time to um, introduce new products. And mm. secondly, that you just want to collect information from the machine um, because you might want to connect to a process further down the line, or you want to collect it because you're trying to improve the product quality or the maintenance of the machine, the maintenance cycles of the machine, or even drive logistical process about supplying more material to the um, uh, equipment, um, if it mm. runs out and all that type of thing. 
So yeah, once you've got that connected up, so like I said, to say the main purpose of a machine controller is to control the machine. And then, uh, so all of the systems are built around it, like programmable logic controllers are dedicated to doing that. And what I mean by that, they're so dedicated to doing that, they've really historically um, a copied standard relay logic. And what I mean by that is, before we had programmable logic controllers, there would be some physical relays in a control panel. And one relay would talk to another relay, if you like, and create a set of logic gates using relays. Um, right. That was then used uh, as a principle because engineers and technicians understood that kind of approach. And we basically created a programmable language called ladder logic that is used in programmable logic controllers. So once again, all of that kind of technology and approach is so far removed from high-level programming languages that are used in the internet or on our, in IT systems. Um, and the way that the data is managed within the systems is, is completely different as well. And also how the um, program is run. Um, mm. Programs run in something like called scan, scan times. And that basically means the whole program is scanned through um, and uh, inputs are read in, the program is scanned through, and outputs are set, and that scan time is a fixed, um, well, when I say it's a fixed scan time, there's a there's a time that that scan has to complete in, otherwise mm. the system um, would error, really. And this, I guess, is one of those systems that worked, did work very well for its time, but now is so embedded in these machines that, it's tricky to move out of, I guess. Yeah, and that's the legacy that we're left with now is that um, pretty much anything that control in, is in a in a in a factory or a machine equipment, whether it's a, a CNC machine or a or a line that makes crisp factory crisps or whatever, mm -hmm. are all controlled with these PLCs. The the other type of machine you get in a factory is a quality test machine. Um, and they tend not to be using PLCs um, because they're not really controlling um, big physical pieces of equipment. They're more controlling uh, mini laboratories, really. Um, right. And they tend to communicate with the world using things like RS-232 um, or 485 or even CSV files or something like that. Um, but once again, not really internet friendly a bit more friendly, but they don't really live into that world. Um, and that's where the second type of uh, approach is um, really. We're saying, okay, well, there isn't these IT-friendly controllers out there today. We haven't moved into them, and we have the legacy of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of machines around the globe, all with PLC controllers, and that's the situation. So generally, what the way we solve it is by converting all of that data, all those protocols, into IT-friendly protocols. Um, mm -hmm. So that re basically requires a bit like a, a massive network or wiring diagram where you've got to wire this bit of data to this bit of data, this bit of data to this bit of data. And every machine is pretty unique. Um, even if you buy, often even if you buy identical machines from a machine builder, the actual memory locations of where this information is stored is different. Just so it's not like you can uh, you can do a bit of development and create a one size fits all solution. No, and there's lots of reason behind that. Um, mainly because a lot of the time 
machine builders are asked to build custom machines. So they go, we want 10 of these machines, but can this one just have this little feature? And can this one have this little feature? And therefore, there's enough variation. Actually, you end up with a, a, a basically a custom-made suit every time you develop mm. these machines, which means that the underlining control technologies are different. And often the control systems are developed by third-party companies. Um, so there's all, all that type of thing. So in the end, what we have to do is use um, protocol converters, um, which convert that information into a more IT-friendly version of it. But it's not really IT-friendly because basically a protocol converter is really just like um, turning on a tap you're turning on this tap and you're squirting a load of data coming out, um, but that data is not contextualized. Um, it's not captured in a in a controlled way. Um, and when I talk about contextualized, you don't know what uh, order it relates to or what part it relates to or what person. So when you start to try and do things like clever data analytics with it, you don't have the capability to slice and dice it necessarily. There are ways mm. and means to achieve that um but yeah it's not ideal or perfect because there's no real domain model data model that associates with it and there's no real standards i mean there are some but not they're not you know it's back to the you, know, you try and solve the the um the amount of protocols by adding another protocol into the mix and mm -hmm. what, what happens is you just end up with more protocols and this is a bit like with standards they're trying to solve the problem with standards but we just add more standards to the mix becomes recursive yeah and then the final part of that is um just don't connect um and many companies have taken that approach but that's also a security problem because what you end up then is trying to take programs on memory sticks like we talked about with the six net and you're taking them from a pc plugging that that usb stick into a, another computer um or you're manually writing down information onto a spreadsheet or something like that and all of that kind of manual um, either translation of information or conversion of information is a security problem. Mm. Um, so it's not necessarily saying, and that's why I say it's a wider thing, just connecting to a machine isn't the answer to, uh, or not connect a machine to your security issues. What if somebody walks away with all this information on a USB stick or or um, written down on a piece of paper or whatever? Um, yeah. So, you know, that actually... And it also, I guess it, it opens you up to a lot of human error, like what if somebody yeah. leaves it on a bus or, you know, yeah. just anything like that. It's, uh, it's, 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 like you say, it seems like it's, a sort of lazy way of solving a problem is difficult to connect, so don't connect. But yeah. actually, uh, in today's world, opens you up to a world of problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this comes on to the the kind of uh, the what if question. What if we rethought about how we do this? If when we started from the requirement of agile manufacturing, reconfigurable factories, all of that type of thing. If we started from that point, would we end up with the types of uh, systems we have today? And I would debate we wouldn't. You know, we would we'll look at it completely differently, and we would solve the problem completely differently if that was the key requirement. Um, and mm -hmm. therefore, it's actually the legacy and the and what we call the technical debt built into everything that's actually holding us back from asking that what if question and developing those technologies um, that would allow for. 
um, us to have these reconfigurable, plug-and-play, agile factories um, of the future. Um, hmm. And therefore, yeah, still considering it to be a step change in the legacy of the approach that we're taking, I don't think it's a good enough approach. I think we do really have to challenge um, the paradigm of where we're at at the moment and reconsider how we can do things. And this is where things like edge computing come into it, where it's uh, very much a, you know, whether it's a, a container or Kubernetes delivered from the cloud with that kind of knowledge and technology built into it that we can then use a different approach on how we both connect to machines and then ultimately um, control those machines. But, um, yeah, that's going to take a bit of time. It's going to take um, uh, a fair bit of investment and um, trust in those new types of technologies. Yeah, and a new perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Uh, okay, I think now is a good a time as any to jump into our interview with Svetan. Uh, thank you so much, Martin. Okay, cheers, Alex. And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Svetan Ratchev, who is Crips Professor of Production Engineering at Nottingham University and Director of the Institute for Advanced Manufacturing uh, in the Faculty of Engineering. Uh, welcome, Svetan, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, well, uh, I am the Director of the Institute for Advanced Manufacturing at Nottingham. And I have been working in the area of uh, manufacturing systems and uh, digital technologies in manufacturing for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, my research group uh, is uh, widely engaged with uh, key UK industries uh, delivering different uh, digital uh, solutions uh, for mostly for uh, large assembly structures but we also engage with, with other industrial sectors. Uh, and uh, I think the key focus of, of the whole development here at Nottingham is really to contextualize digital technologies and really uh, uh, support industry in uh, uh, a rapid implementation. Yeah. So Svetan, you've um, kindly invited me along to some of the Aura conferences that you've held at um, Nottingham University. Um, what was the what what were you trying to achieve with those conferences? Is it about getting like-minded people together to try and achieve things? What's what's the main purpose for you for those conferences? I think that there are several aspects to it. One is obviously to bring a community of knowledge in what are some of the very exciting manufacturing technologies today. Uh, the other kind of main, main objective is really to capture industrial requirements and aspirations, understand where the future challenges are, and see how we can leverage the, the current digital technologies to, to help address these challenges. And as researchers, we very much looked into the kind of the long-term trends in, in industry and try to almost anticipate the, the needs five, 10 years ahead and then develop the, the basic research and the technical solutions that will be available at the time when they need it. And, and some of those things are, are very, um, I know you've been a big promoter of the use of data 
um, and how we um, utilize data or, or create value of data. Um, and where do, where do you see the kind of investments required then that, that will make a difference to UK manufacturing? Is it is it in these kind of data stores or whatever it is, or are there other areas you think that we can really create some value for UK I, manufacturing? From, from our perspective, is really understanding the data and the, the, the benefits that businesses can, can uh, leverage from data. Uh, but also driving the cost of the technology to a level where the mainstream manufacturing businesses can afford it. So mm. at Nottingham, we developed the concept of uh, a product DNA where you attach all relevant information to a product as it goes through the production process. And then you keep that data that can be interrogated, can be leveraged for improving the, the production process, but also can be used when the product is in, 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 in use and service. And then this way you can link the manufacturing to design, which precedes manufacturing, but also to service and eventually disposal of the product. And this is where data can deliver incredible benefits. Mm. And it's actually that 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 requires a almost like a frictionless data exchange, though. And I guess in the today's more monolithic application centric world, it's a bit more difficult to get those types of things where in the Internet, we're so used to it, aren't we? You're so used to data being available on the Internet, but it's still within manufacturing. It's still quite a siloed approach, isn't it? Yes. So. Uh, this is where we all hope the, the kind of the industrial uh, um, uh, 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 Internet of Things will help us connect almost every device and every actor in the production environment and also the, the service environment. But also, this is where we, we need to look for different level of interoperability between different systems, understanding, contextualizing data, ability to uh, uh, track uh, digital footprint of every object both in the production process and in usage and really leverage that information back to uh, 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 to production and to design. And some of those internet technologies are very powerful things, aren't they? You know, the, the different um, database technologies, the different analytics engines that have been produced by these big um, Silicon Valley, Valley companies, but they're not really being adopted by manufacturing in that way because there's quite a... I guess there's quite a long investment cycle, isn't there, within manufacturing, and it's quite slow to change. I think this investment cycle uh, is the challenge of uh, really assuring manufacturers of data security, data integrity, uh, how we authenticate data and software in the production environment, how we make sure that we use the right software and that software will deliver the right results is this is some of the critical barriers, if you want, and challenges that we need to address. Another, mm. another dimension to it is really how we can develop low barriers of implementation of this technology. And we have a project uh, jointly with the uh, University of Cambridge, uh, uh, which is titled Digital Manufacturing on a Shoestring, where we particularly focus on uh, how we can develop some of the very low-cost technologies that can be available to the very big SME market uh, for digital uh, applications. 
and and that's one thing about scale isn't it i mean one of the reasons why things are expensive is because they they are complicated they they're slow to implement as they are today because of the complexities around it um and the security requirements around it but actually to scale at a pace that can bring value to businesses we've really got to look at it in a different way isn't it it's, you know, the prices will come down with scale um yeah, and and without the complications to it, uh, uh, Martin. One is yes, we need to get the scale to drive the cost down. The other, the other dimension to it is to really st start with, uh, or probably simplify some of the applications to a level where the cost is lower, that is easy to implement, that builds the confidence in the manufacturers that the technology is working and is affordable, and that will that will stimulate uptake of the technology uh, by, by wider number of, of businesses. And do you think those demonstrators, because there's quite a lot of effort and strategy is into, you know, from a UK standpoint, is into industry demonstrators. And, you know, we've been involved with you guys producing some of those demonstrators through the FA3D uh, project. Um, what, 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 do you think the, the demonstrators are achieving that or is there other means to do this? I think the demonstrators are a critical component. They're not the only solution, but they're a critical component in really bringing the technology to a level where it can be demonstrated to industry with clearly visible benefits. And the FA3D, our first application in that area, was um, really transfor transformational in terms of coming with a solution of how we can manufacture low, uh, low volume, high complexity, high value products like aircraft structures uh, in a cost effective manner by leveraging digital technologies. And as you know, and with some of your technology, we have developed an environment which allowed real-time networking uh, of different resources. Uh, we demonstrated for the first time how you can use embedded intelligence with decentralized control. Uh, we have also managed to demonstrate plug and produce and context-aware uh, environment and uh, ability to constantly and automatically uh, monitor performance and uh, uh, conduct some predictive maintenance. So these are major achievements, but on its own, individually, they're not very easy to sell unless you put them in a, in a demonstrator where the results are clearly visible. Hmm. So what's next? What's next on your horizon? Well, the next one that we're really working, and that is a really exciting uh, uh, program at the moment, is what we call the elastic manufacturing systems, where we challenge the traditional manufacturing system approach by allowing future manufacturing operations to be delivered as a service uh, based on dynamic resource requirements and provision. And this way, we're trying to open manufacturing to entirely different business and cost models. So here we look at really applying digital technologies for achieving different level of production elasticity, i.e. ability to deploy local and third party resources in the most productive way. Capability elasticity in terms of ability to extend the set of processes uh, uh, in response to different product requirements which are continuously changing. 
We're also looking at control elasticity, which is probably the easier part of it, and also cost elasticity, how we can manage cost and compare that to different other performance indicators. So by doing this, we're almost kind of rewriting some of the, the rules of manufacturing, if you want, and that is only possible by using uh, uh, the latest digital technologies available. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at that. I did a, a doing a releasing an article today on this, and um, a little bit really looking at trying to get down to the roots cause of why it's difficult to do some of this, you know. Um, and I don't think people always appreciate how difficult and why it's so complicated to do what we're doing. And actually, our job is to try and make it as easy as possible, isn't it? So, so we hide that complexity. Um, but there's a lot of effort and a lot of. Um, research required before we can hide that complexity from the end uh, end user assistance. I mean, from our perspective, we're bringing together, and this is what you don't see at the front end, we're bringing together manufacturing system science, applied mathematics, computer science, business studies, control engineering in the same domain, and trying to develop this completely different concept of manufacturing. And we're very excited about it. And and also human factors. We were discussing that a bit earlier, weren't we? The human factor side. Human in the loop is one of the key elements of this and how we leverage human intelligence with the power of digital control to achieve the best performance of a system, but also to give job satisfaction and enhance the role of the human operator. And give us more free time. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't believe though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything from you alex on this I, uh, I had one thing i was curious about obviously we're talking about very um forward thinking things and looking to the future and how things are going to change uh, and i was just wondering in your role uh, as a professor do you see any um interesting perspectives coming from your students that you wouldn't otherwise see because obviously you have a wealth of experience you work with people who have a wealth of experience but is there anything you're getting from the next generation of experts coming through that surprises uh, well, you it doesn't surprise me but it, it excites me because we have the next generation of engineers coming which are much more uh, aware of digital technologies they're much more willing to try digital technologies and really push the boundaries. We're also moving gradually to developing what I call the engineer of the future, which is engineers that combine both mechanical systems and control engineering uh, uh, in, in kind of the same domain. And that, I think, is going to be transformational for uh, industry in the next five to ten years. Fascinating. Excellent. I think it's that kind of, I think they call it the T-shaped team as well, isn't it? It's kind of, they're all deep in one area, but they're uh, very, uh, they can be cross-functional in others I mean, as well. Look, we try different ways. We try to convert computer scientists into engineers. We try to convert mm -hmm. engineers into computer scientists. And then I think mm -hmm. the, the lesson is that need to have a more holistic approach to it. Maybe we'll go back to the kind of original engineers of the Brunel type, where they really have a general understanding of what engineering is. That's brilliant. I think that's a really good point to uh, uh, close on. I think that was a, a great end to... Uh, so thank you very much for your time, Svetan. I know we've uh, 
gone over a little bit of your time, but um, um, I think it's been fascinating stuff. As always, yeah, thank you so much, Fertan. We uh, we look forward to more conversations in the future. So that's it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast, first of the new year. How did you find it, Martin? I really enjoyed it. It's good to be back in the saddle, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, and looking forward to coming up with some ideas for the rest of the year. So hopefully Absolutely. we'll be heading into 2022, still with the podcast raring to go. Fingers crossed. I know you've got a few good interviews lined up over the next few weeks, so I'm looking forward to more of that. Excellent. Uh, I have, as always, uh, got a quote for you. This one's more specific. We've been talking about the cloud. I thought I'd go to, uh, yeah, Steve Jobs, big name in the old tech scene. Uh, and his his view on the cloud was, I don't need a hard disk in my computer if I can get to the server faster. Carrying around these non-connected computers is Byzantine by comparison. <laughs> He said what he meant. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, sometimes you just have to reimagine what it would be if you were solving the problem today. And that's where we're at, really. We have to we have to make those leaps forward. Mm. Good stuff. All right. I will see you next week, Martin. Okay. Cheers, Alex. Bye. Cheers, Dan. Bye-bye. If you're looking for more information on the world of Atlas or if you have any questions at all, please head on over to weareatlas.com and let us know your thoughts.